think this is where everything finishes up. We just may be at the end of the line. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF, I'm Gary Mance. And Suzanne Mitchell is somewhere in the building getting connected. Oh, it's one of those Zoomless Fridays. They're rare and never welcome. But here we are, and we're looking forward to an interview that we think is going to offer you the potential to enhance the quality of your life, as few guests do on any talk show. But I want to avoid hype, so instead I'll just go ahead and say hello to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny. How about that tournament? Oh, man, it is off the rails right now, Um, especially yesterday's game with UCLA and Gonzaga. That went down to the wire. This is why I like March Madness and go Zags, only because they're local. Go Zags. Yeah. I wish them – you know what? And I will say this. The Zags, which is interesting because they're the Gonzaga Bulldogs, and yet they have Zags on their shirts. They're the only team, I think, in Division I basketball that has – the wrong nickname on their jerseys. <laughs> it's just an alternate nickname against the Bulldogs. They are UCLA's official nemesis at this point. They've done this to them two years in a row. For sure. And we want to continue the trend, go all the way. And uh, in some brackets, I know my buddy is a, it went to Gonzaga, still has him uh, winning it all. So I think he's one of the few still left in the tournament, for the brackets, that is. You know, under no has them in the tournament, but there are no perfect brackets. That went out after the first weekend. Right. It was just during the first, what, round of 32? It's over. Forget it. <laughs> That's the way it goes. It's like the odds against winning that thing. Man, they ought to put up at least $50 million if somebody can hit that. And here we are talking basketball, and we're about to talk to a gentleman there who has written this wonderful book. I'm very excited about it, and I don't mind telling our listeners that I read it out loud, word for word, to Suzanne Mitchell, so that we could both absorb. I read it and pondered. She absorbed and took a whole bunch of notes, and we are going to do our best to get over the balance of this hour as much of this information out to you because it has life-changing potential. I know you've heard it before on any number of shows that you listen to. I've heard the same thing myself, but when I run into the real deal, I want to let people know about it on Manson Mitchell, and that's what we're going to do today. Suzanne, are you with us? Apparently not. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and, and give the title of this book. It's Just a Thought, Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking. I want to read that again. It's Just a Thought, Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking. And I started talking about basketball for a reason, because I'm going to draw an analogy in the course of this interview that I think just it portrays in a way, in almost a pure essential way, exactly what our author, Thomas M. Sterner, is going to be talking about. He teaches this. He's done it for years. He has a couple of books pertinent to this subject generally with a lot of specific advice. And when he works with his clientele, their lives improve. And what more could you ask? First, I'm going to give Mr. Sterner his mad props here. Thomas M. Sterner is the founder and CEO of the Practicing Mind Institute. Remember that, Practicing Mind Institute, a successful entrepreneur and an expert in present moment functioning. As a popular and in-demand speaker and coach, he works with high-performance industry groups and individuals, including athletes, coaches, and CEOs. How appropriate. 
freeing them to operate effectively in high-stress situations so that they can break through to new levels of mastery. The author of the international bestseller, The Practicing Mind, and Fully Engaged. He lives in Delaware, but right now he's on Zoom and talking to all of us. Thomas M. Sterner, first time around, Senor. Glad to have you with us. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I'm also with you on the phone until I get the Zoom back up, so I'm here too. Very good. All right, let me kick things off in sort of a soft and sports-oriented way, and I'm glad for all your life experience, Thomas, because you would have that kind of latitude in in applying what you know to various contexts of life. I'm following this tournament more avidly than usual because Princeton is in it. No, I didn't go to Princeton. There, I know a few people who have, and they must be jumping for joy because they're in the Sweet 16 of the national tournament, the NC2A Men's Basketball Tournament, and they're going to be playing tonight. Now, they're playing Creighton out of Nebraska. I bring them up to you, Thomas, because of this. From reading your book, I was able to draw a parallel between the principles that you espouse, practice, and teach to the so-called Princeton offense. It's been nicknamed the Clockwork Orange offense, but what it comes down to is a deliberate, methodical, and intensely pragmatic way of looking at the game of college basketball. And at Princeton, where you have to be academically qualified and not simply athletically talented, a coach who passed away less than a year ago, Pete Carrill, devised the Princeton offense, and what an offense it is. Some people might compare it to watching grass grow compared to the virtual greyhounds running up and down the course. These naturally talented young men. That's not the way they play basketball at Princeton. Their philosophy is, and it goes back to what Coach Pete Carrill, the late great Pete Carrill said, his dad used to tell him, the strong take from the weak, but the smart take from the strong. And the reason why that works is because if you are deliberate, if you are fully intentional, and if you practice, 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 you can achieve what people think is impossible. You can go up against a vastly superior opponent and emerge victorious on the basis of your disciplined mind and your willingness to execute it physically. Now, Thomas M. Sterner, does that not sound like the kind of thing you might coach people in your own practice? Yes, it certainly would. And I think that um, the difference when we use the word deliberate thinking, um, most of the day for almost everyone, their thinking is not deliberate. Their thinking is done for them by their subconscious mind. And what has happened is over their lifetime, the subconscious mind, the language of the subconscious mind is your feelings. That's what it pays attention to. So when a situation happens, In front of you, the subconscious mind is noticing how that situation makes you feel. And then it correlates a a relationship between the situation and the feeling. And then it stores that. It's, you know, it's very accurate. It doesn't think, it doesn't have a sense of humor. And we need our subconscious. You know, we don't, our subconscious is a million times faster than our conscious. And, uh, you know, if you touch a hot stove, you don't have to think about how to take your hand off of it because the subconscious mind jumps in and takes over for you. But the problem is that because it habitualizes responses to circumstances around you, what neuroscience says now is that about 95% of the day, we are actually not engaged in thinking we're being thought. So what happens is something 
uh, you, you get triggered. You see there's a stimulus out in front of you. It could be a person that walks in a room. It could be a circumstance. You read something, something upsets you or something makes you happy. Whatever it is, the subconscious mind sees it and then says, how are we supposed to feel when this happens? And then it goes and gets that file off the hard drive, plays it out, and you experience it. That is not deliberate thinking. Deliberate thinking is when you're outside of that experience and you're noticing it uh, more from an observer point of view. And that's when you get the privilege of choice as to how do I want to experience this? And also uh, you have the opportunity to reprogram experiences. So uh, deliberate thinking is really the, I think this is one of the things that we have learned uh, in the last maybe 25 years uh, about how the mind works, the interaction between our conscious mind and our subconscious mind. And it really is the key to the prison door. Tom, I was thinking uh, earlier about how uh, a thought always precedes a feeling. And I like what you say about grabbing a file, because the it, it seems as though the first thing that happens is there's a thought, and then the subconscious mind goes to the file that's related to that event, and isn't that when the feeling pops up because of some prior experience that you had that looks like what you're having now? Well, I would that's close. I, I would say it's more that you see something or hear something or a circumstance comes up. The the um the subconscious mind plays the thought out that goes with the feeling. Uh, and and then as the thought appears in your head, the sub they, they both it's almost like they happen at the same time, you know, because every thought has a correlation in in terms of feeling, and so you know that's a really good point, and I, I think that <clears throat> I think it's important to understand that of course it's happening in microseconds, but I think that the the feeling I, I you know it's very clear that what the subconscious the language of the subconscious is the feeling, it is not the thought. So the thought always goes along with the feeling. So when the subconscious sees the feeling, then it, um, it, it records that as this is what you should feel uh, when that happens. Well, in order for you to feel that, it has to put the thought out there. So the, And the thought basically is the blueprint for the feeling, if that makes sense. Uh, why, why, do we have, why do we think thoughts that upset us? Well, we don't think them. The subconscious plays them back. You know, so in other words, um, if somebody walks in a room that is, you know, not someone you get along with, or if let's just say somebody says, you know, your hair looks really weird today. Um, and then what happens is, is, you know, you have, you feel um, bad about yourself or insulted or whatever. And the subconscious is looking at that. So the subconscious says, oh, okay, when this circumstance happens, this is how we want to react because that's what it's doing. And it's just like, um, you know, like the fight or flight thing, something happens and the subconscious says, you got to do this now, um, you know, whether it's running away or whatever. So the subconscious is still, it's still executing that role. It's just that in some, in many of our situations, we don't want it to execute that role. So what happens is it, re it records that. And then it creates the, it just plays the thought back without your permission. 
it just, uh, it plays it back because it assumes that this is the thought that you want. This is based on what the situation is. So the next time somebody says something to you, it it could be, um, "Have you gained weight?" You know, it doesn't have to be the hair. Or, you know, like um, it could be like, right. but it's a very similar situation. You know, have you gained weight? The subconscious says, "Well, this is this is that type of a circumstance. This is how they told us they want to feel when this happens." So give them this, this the the thought and the feeling, the emotional content of the thought, you know, because thoughts do have emotional content. So it plays, it runs the thought out, which creates the feeling, and then you experience it. And so there's the problem is that for the most part, we're in the thought. We're basically being thought by our consciousness as opposed to us thinking. And so that's why, you know, when you say, why do we have thoughts we don't want to? Well, it's because we're not in control of where the thinking, you know, we're not thinking, we're just being thought. So we're not the one who's driving the chariot. Well, what determines our personality, Tom? Well, you're, that's a, that's kind of a, what I've read that our personality is going to be determined by our thoughts, feelings, and experiences. That's true. Um, but our, th- our personality is, it's almost another study, is that, you know, what they have found is that for the most part, your personality is formed by the time you're seven years old. And then you're basically working with that personality for the rest of your life. Uh, I think that that's probably changing now because we have more of an understanding on it. But, you know, when you're born, um, if you just look at, say, animals on the plane, uh, they have to observe what the herd is doing immediately to survive. And that's what they do. And they take that information in. And, you know, my older daughter is in early childhood learning and we've had, you know, many conversations about this. And what happens is, is that, you know, when you're growing up, particularly, you know, at that age between, you know, one and seven, you're a a sponge that is just absorbing everything around you. In fact, your brain is functioning in a brainwave pattern that is uh, pretty much hypnosis. So it's just taking suggestion and, and it's watching and, oh, this is how this is how that you handle the, the child is watching the parents and they get upset about, I don't know, they drop something on the floor or spilled some milk or something. And the child is watching that and they're saying, oh, this is how you handle that type of a situation. It's not that the parent is trying to teach them that. It's just that, that the, the child is observing all the time. This is why it's so important that people be aware of what they're actually showing, you know, externally. And we're really kind of back to what we're talking about here. If you're not thinking deliberately, then you're not acting deliberately. And if you're not acting deliberately, then you're not showing, you're not aware of what you are teaching some, uh, like a child to do. And, but that's where your personality really comes from. And then unfortunately, then you have to spend the rest of your life trying to undo stuff that uh, doesn't serve your happiness. Well, and that's exactly what I thought when I was reading your book is that the the uh, child's personality is formed in those early years with a lot of uh, programming because little children are sponges and they're hearing and seeing things that they may not understand from the adult world, but they're putting that programming in their head. Uh, and so now you've got some automatic responses to events that are occurring either you know, you're always mad or you're always apologetic or you laugh at everything, you know, whatever that response is, it's kind of a learned response from a very early age. So I was thinking that it is very, very difficult to have a thought which is outside of your programming, that that 
you know, it could be 95% of everything that we're doing is all reaction, 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 and we're meeting other people's reactions. It's very difficult to um, get into that deliberate thinking where you are taking maybe a pause and not going into an automatic reaction. Well, that's true. But I think the good news is that we didn't know that before. You know, we know that we know how it works now. And knowing, you know, you can't change something that you're unaware is happening. And now that we're aware of that, one of the things that is very important, um, you cannot be deliberate thinking if you're in the thoughts. So that's just clear. Right. So how do you get out of that? Like, well, you know, I have um, there was one time when I was working with a bunch of high school kids and I I did a thing for two minutes and I just you know set a timer. and I said, I want you to close your eyes and stop thinking. Now, of course, I knew they couldn't do that, but they didn't know they couldn't do it. And so they went into this thing for two minutes. And at the end of it, when they came out, they were just chattering all over, you know, about how they couldn't stop their mind. And they were in a cafeteria or they're working on some homework or test was coming up they were worrying about. And so then I posed this question to them. I said, if if you are willing your mind, you, your true self is willing your mind to stop thinking and your mind is saying, no, I'm going to do it anyway then who's really in control during your day? Because it's not you. And that was a perspective that they had never, it just had never occurred to them. And this is, but they also experienced during this time of trying to slow their mind down and trying to um, to be more in a meditative state, it was the first time their thoughts had thinned out a little bit. And it was very, ah. uh, it was very appealing to them uh, because, you know, our minds are hyper- hyperactive today because of all the social media and smartphones and just, you know, the media is connected to us all the time. And so we're always overstimulated. And as we're we're overstimulated, we are in a compulsive thinking mode all of the time. And uh, so when we try to stop thinking, when we try to reel our mind into focus on anything, it, it just doesn't have the faculty. It's not that it's not capable of having the faculty. It's a faculty that we don't ask it, you know, to do. So I always work with people and tell them I want at least 10 minutes of what I call thought awareness training uh, every day. And and that means, you know, sitting quietly, closing your eyes. Uh, I usually give my clients a wave file, meaning an ocean wave file, which just kind of helps to block out the external stimulus. And then I have them, I'll tell them, I just want you to follow your breath. Just watch it. I said, don't try to control it. Don't count it. I don't want you thinking. I just want you to be the observer. Um, or you can say a short phrase. Now, the purpose of this is to notice that how much thinking your mind is doing without your permission and to notice yeah. when it's doing that, because you can't change it if you don't notice when it's doing it. So you're cultivating the observer perspective. And then what happens is as you get out of that, then when you have a reaction to a situation from the subconscious and you're not thinking deliberately, you notice it. You because now you're in a different perspective. You're anchored. Your consciousness is anchored in the observer uh, and the noticer, as opposed to being in the thought and being thought. And it's a it's a very it's a very different perspective. And when you feel it, you notice that it's a very different perspective. And that's when you have the key to the prison door. When you begin to develop that faculty, and anybody can do it. And actually, you know, by going through this process of ten minutes a day. Um, you can't stop it from happening. It's just like it's, it's like there's it's just a byproduct of doing this process. And I should say that where people fall down in this is that they think that what they're trying to do 
is to still their mind so they have no thought. And we're not looking for a transformational experience here. What we're looking for is an awareness of when the mind is thinking without your permission. That's what we're, you know, for what we're talking about here, that's what we want. And it doesn't matter how much how much your mind runs off because that'll that's what'll happen is you'll be sitting there and you'll close your eyes and and within 10 seconds you know your mind will just take off it just says this is boring and i you know i don't need i i don't need to be watching my breath because I, I your body knows how to breathe and it takes off and it says i'm going to go to the store or i'm going to it starts working on stuff later in the day that it has to do and you just go with it and then there's a moment when you wake up and you realize that your mind is someplace doing something other than you instructed it to do, which was just watch your your body breathe. And it's in that moment that all the magic happens, because in that moment, when you notice that you have become the noticer, you have become the person who is aware that your mind is doing something that you, um, you're outside of and that you need to pull it back. And then also when you pull it back, your willpower is strengthened. And those two things are fundamental to freedom um, in terms of your life and your mind, because when that happens, that's when you have the opportunity to watch your mind, notice what it's doing, and then intervene and say, you know, uh, isn't it interesting? I'm having an anxious thought. I'm not anxious. I'm having an anxious thought. This situation is is giving me an anxious thought, which means I have told myself over my lifetime that when the situation like this has happened, give me an anxious thought, but I'm not the thought. I'm outside of the thought. And when you begin to have that experience, that's when you begin to get, that's the key to the prison door, because that's when you begin to have the opportunity to recraft what your um, reactions are going to be. And, and I tell people, look, there's a difference between a reaction and a response. A reaction has no thinking involved. It's just a reaction. A response has willpower and decision in it. That's why we call them first responders, not first reactors. You know, I mean, they know when they get into a situation, they know what they're going to do when they're confronted with a lot of emotional content. They've already made those decisions. And so that's part of the reprogramming process. I love that. I love what you just said, this idea of contrasting reaction and response, because they are qualitatively different and can be, as far as I'm concerned, they can not only be crucial in negotiations, resolving conflicts, they can be critical to your well-being if you can't distinguish one from the other, especially in the moment. It was the great cognitive researcher, Mike Tyson, who said, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. <laughs> that's, that's good. I never heard that before. Um, so when I think about that, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to do, and then I'm going to come up, and then I'm uppercut, and then I've been practicing this. And then you get belted in the mouth by Mike Tyson. First of all, it will take everything you have within you to remain upright there. But when that happens, when adversity sets in, particularly suddenly, on what will you rely? My guess is, based on your book and on the way you're speaking, Thomas, is that we will rely on our programming, even if it's no damn good for us, because it's ingrained and not to our advantage. Absolutely. And, you know, what you have to understand is you are writing the programs all day long, every day. Whether you know you're doing it or not doesn't matter. The system is always running. The recorder is always running. And so the fact that you don't know um, has no bearing on the situation. And because the subconscious doesn't think, uh, you know, when you say something like, um, I don't want to be nervous in that situation. Well, what you're telling it is you want to be nervous. And, um, and the subconscious mind doesn't say, I don't, 
think that's really what he means. I think what he really means is, so we'll just tweak this a little bit and change the programming. It just takes it verbatim. And, and so, uh, and I, I, I like to see people get to the point where when, when they have a, a quote, a reaction to something, they're in a place, they're so installed in the observer that they go, hmm, isn't that interesting? This is what I told myself I should feel when this happens. I mean, that's being completely outside of it. And that's when you can say, you know what? Um, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. I think my reaction is going to be this instead. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this. It's, it's not the, the habitual behavior that you have installed. You have run that program tens of thousands of times in your life. And it's going to push back because it's basically the subconscious is saying, hey, wait a minute, you told us you told us over and over again, this is what you wanted us to do. So what are you telling to us? You're telling us now you don't want to do that. So there is a there is a pushback. But again, in deliberate thinking, you're aware that that's going to come and you're not taken by surprise. It's like, yeah, it showed up just, just as I expected it to. And I think it's very important to have, um, when we talk about responses, what is, you know, you think we always work out, you know, with, cl with clients, what are you going to, when you know the situation is going to happen, you know, it's going to reply, it's going to show up because it has shown up over and over again. So if you could do anything you wanted in that situation, what would it be? Most of the time people don't know. They have never even thought about that. They're just in the, re in the reaction. So when you take them aside and say, okay, I know you react that way, but how would you like to react? You know, because we got to start there. We got to have a target. And and then when you start with there, then they're in a position where they're they're basically becoming objective. And if you look at this, this is how responses work. For example, you know, as a pilot, you don't you don't wait for the engine to quit to figure out, you know, that's not when you get the pilot operating handbook, how to start flipping through it. Like um, you have a whole procedure that you're going to do if that happens. So that as soon as something happens, instead of you being in the emotional content of a normal reaction, which would be say panic, you immediately fall into a procedure that you have created at a time when you weren't in that situation so that you can practice it in your mind. And it's no different in, you know, if you have, I've had people that are in uh, uh, counseling or therapy with a partner and the partner is extremely intimidating and um, pushes their buttons all the time. And and when you ask them, okay, well, you know, that's going to happen on your next session. So if I can touch you on the head and you can do anything, what's that going to be? And <clears throat> you always get the, oh, geez, I don't know. Like, well, if you don't know, you're not going to figure it out when you're in the session. Let's figure out, you know, exactly what your target is. And let's, let's have a way of anchoring onto that so that you're not just being pulled into the emotional response of because that's your, that's the behavior that you've taught yourself you should have. Let's go ahead and take our one and only break of this hour. We will come back and talk more with Thomas M. Sterner, and we're going to get into what it takes to learn a new skill and master a new skill. Very good information. So stay with us and we'll be back shortly. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. 
If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Tom Sterner, author of It's Just a Thought, who integrates ancient wisdom and modern science to show us how to create emotional freedom through deliberate thinking. On Saturday, Kelly Sullivan Walden is featured in this Encore presentation from earlier this year about her latest book, A Crisis is a Terrible Thing to Waste. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Get your daily dose of variety. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest, Thomas M. Sterner, who has written several books. The recent one that Gary and I read is called It's Just a Thought, Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking. Tom, if people want to get more information about you or your books, uh, where is the best place for them to find all of that? Uh, probably my website, which is TomSterner.com. You know, they can go on there. They can also sign up for, I, I, I give people a free half hour uh, if they want to investigate working with me. And that way we can talk and decide if it's a good idea or not. All right. Tom Sterner is the website, not Thomas M. Sterner, the name on the book, TomSterner.com. And you can find him and his books. Before we went to break, you were talking about learning a new skill. I, I found this part so fascinating in your book. You talked about the pushback before the break. You will begin to learn a new skill, and then there's going to be that resistance to learning the new skill. But the uh, the thing that I liked so much, the, the, the thing that I grabbed a hold of was the more you practice a new skill, there is a point at which, I almost want to say it's just like a single point, and it may not be, but you go from thinking you can do it to knowing you can do it. And it seems to occur sometime during practicing this new skill which means there's a shift, a mental shift, where suddenly, instead of like, I have to think about if I'm golfing, I have to put my feet in a certain place and my hands in a certain place and the ball in a certain place. If you don't have to think about that or in basketball, you know, I have to put my feet here, the ball is in my hands here, whatever the skill is, there is a point at which you stop having to think about every single item and you just do it. 
Right. How, has that been identified? Like when that well, happens? You know, it's you'll find it in everything. I mean, I'm I've been a musician most of my life. Um, I've also been a very uh, serious golfer. Um, and I, I would I'll describe it this way: what you're describing is the dissolving of technical barriers. So you know what happens is as when you start out. For any skill, you start, it's a, it's a linear line, and you start out at no skill. And then you're on this line of mastery, and you have a choice as to um, how you, you interpret that line. You can interpret it as drudgery, or you can interpret it as um, exciting that, you know, the, the line is just there. You have to repeat the, uh, the mechanics until there, um, that, that technical part drops away because when the technical part drops away, that's when you're free to express yourself in whatever the skill is. So let's just look at, um, music, you know, like when you start out your first day of lessons, you're in this place where you don't understand the notes on the page, what their, the time difference is, the time signature, that's the note value. You don't know where they are on the keyboard. If it's a piano that you're learning. And so that's, that's your skill level right there. You're up against your threshold right there. That's your skill level. If you jump ahead, let's just say three years, that's not where your skill level is anymore. Now your skill level is up here. And those things, they you have mastered all them. And so the technical barriers are gone. You know, Now you're looking at the music and just playing. Now, the, if you increase the difficulty of the music, then you'll be back in that to that um you'll be back into your technical barriers again because you have to get um that's what growth is you know in any kind of a um any kind of a skill development and i think what's really important which for people to understand is you're always up against your threshold in any skill development you're always going to be operating at your skill at what that threshold is and so if you look at that and then we just go back to the piano example on the very first day what does that feel like? The feeling is this is hard. That's the feeling. If you go ahead three years, 10 years, 20 years, and I worked you know, as a, a high-level piano, the uh, concert piano technician, I worked with all the the all the big bands like you know um woody herman stan kenton buddy rich all those guys i met all those guys like um but also all these major classical musicians and, and country western and pops and they none of them ever looked at their uh their skill as being well i'm where I, this is as far as i get they just looked at my life is working at the skill but if you look at this and you go like okay now this piano player jumps ahead three years um what does it feel like in the it feels the same because they're up against their threshold. It feels like this is hard because that's where they are. And I think what, what foils people's efforts when they're developing a skill is that they interpret that wrong. They interpret that as this is hard, this is wrong, I'm not getting any better because it feels difficult. But that's because you're trying to do what you haven't mastered yet. And so when you look at it like that, that feeling of struggle is just data. It's all it is. It's just information. It's just feedback that you're up against your, your threshold. That's all it's telling you. You can interpret that any way you want, but really that's where you want to be. You always want to be up against your, your skills threshold because that means you're pushing your threshold forward. And you don't go back to play the music that you learned on the very first week of, of piano lessons because you're way past that. And it's, you know, we don't, the problem is we don't, when we're developing a skill, we never think about what we're what we've mastered because it flows effortlessly it's not hard for us there's no technical barriers there we only notice it when we can't do it or we're in st some stage of uh, being able to do it and that's when we start um 
you know, screwing around in our head and saying, like, I should be farther along with this, I should be better at it, um, and all these types of things that happen. But really, when it's difficult, when you feel that, when you feel like it's a struggle, struggle is just a word. It's just a label that is telling you you're up against your threshold. That's all it is. It's just data. Um, that feeling is just data. And you should feel that, you know, when you're practicing. And that, I guess my point with these artists that have reached such in incredibly high levels they welcome that. They always wanted to be there. They didn't, you know, they didn't want to be playing stuff that was effortless for them. They wanted to always be up against what they were doing. And I think you find it in sports. You know, I mean, in sports, everybody wants to be, you know, they don't want to like the NBA. Those guys don't know, but don't want to play basketball with six foot hoops. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. they want to be up against their skill level. They want to play against people that are hard. They want to play against people that are at their skill level. You know, they don't want to play against a high school team. Like if they're a pro, I mean, this is, like I said, you want that, you want to be in that environment. And it's the information that you're getting that you can misinterpret as being bad is actually just the information doesn't know how it makes you feel. It's just information. I love that. You know, deliberate thinking is also a skill. And that is, you know, primarily what we want to talk about. I like the fact that it's all skills, you know, matter whether it's music or sports, but thinking is also that skill. And one of the things that I was talking with Gary uh, about this morning is that when you are, when you have a situation and it involves thinking, especially when it involves other people. There is this sense of later on saying, I should have said this, I should have done that. Thinking about all the things that we did wrong in an interaction and, and those occasions, those rare occasions where we're actually present in that moment, we're observing what's going on, and we actually say and do the right thing. It doesn't happen a lot. And I think that's because of the, the programming. But this is what I said to Gary, and I would like to get your take on it. It seems to me that when you are able to be in that present moment and, and, and be detached from what's going on, instead of reacting, and we are reacting most of the time, it has nothing to do with controlling another person. It has everything to do with controlling yourself. And when you control your own thinking and you are controlling yourself, you are in a very powerful position, no matter who is in the room. Does Absolutely. That... Yes. Yeah. And there's a, um, there was a chapter, a story in the second, my second book, Fully Engaged, where as a concert technician, um, I had to deal sometimes with persnickety artists. And there was a very well-known, world-renowned classical pianist that was coming into the theater that I was working at. And unknown to me, he had a an alcohol problem at that time in his life. And um the way that the piano worked there was that the piano was stored, the concert piano was stored under the stage because they had other shows there and the piano was in the way and it was big. Uh, the problem was as it was under the stage, the the air was not um, filtered. So it could get humid and that sort of thing. And, you know, on a piano, that's death because everything in it is wood and felt and it swells and contracts and the thing gets terribly out of tune and the touch gets all uneven. There's all sorts of things that happen. 
So what the normally what they would do is they would pull the piano out and put it on the stage maybe several days before so it could acclimate. And then I would come in and spend maybe five or six hours on the instrument before the artist ever saw it. Well, I was supposed to go in on Saturday about, um, I don't know, maybe one in the afternoon and work on the piano until five. And then the pianist was supposed to be allowed to come in, play the piano. The show was at eight and be able to um, to work on the piano. And then we would talk and he'd say, you know, can you do this or can you tweak that? Apparently, the guy got in there into town Friday night, Saturday morning, he got up and he was bored and he went over to the theater and some new uh, stagehand who just didn't know let him in. And the guy went in and played on the piano and he was just absolutely livid. And um, and he called me every name of the book and all sorts of stuff. I was a jerk. I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, all these things. And I got a phone call from the the, the poor kid who was uh, had let him in. And he's, you know, I could hear the guy in the background and he said, like, you know, what do you want me to do? I said, well, I'll I, I'll come in. And um, and so this is when the story started to unfold, because as I left. My first thought was, you know, man, you just threw me down a rabbit hole and I'm going to have to dig myself out of this, this situation because this guy already hates the piano and I'm going to have to change his mind about it. And it's not easy to do. And um, but then I thought to myself, you know, um, and this is just from all of my work and research. I thought, well, wait a minute. What am I in control of? I'm in control of myself. I'm not in control of what he says. I'm not in control of what he thinks. And I'm not in control of how he receives what I say. I'm only in control of how I process him. So what do I want to happen for me? And I thought, I don't want to allow him to touch my inner peace. I remember saying that to myself. This guy is not going to touch my inner peace. I don't care what he says to me, how, how much he insults me. I, all, I'm going to, um, all I am going to be looking at and monitoring is my inner peace because that's what I have control over. So I get to the theater and I walk in and the guy's downstairs and I come in and I just start stripping the piano out to um, to tune it first so I can see what we got. And, and here he comes. You know, he comes up on the stage and um, he's coming across the stage. He's breathing fire. And um, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to make the first strike here. Because I understood where he was coming from. It was a solo act. He wasn't playing with an orchestra. It was just him and the piano for two hours. And so, you know, I I introduced myself to him. He was, you know, puffing, like um, but he he let me talk, which was fortunate. And I said, Look, I understand why you're upset. I said, first of all, it doesn't matter how much you've practiced or how good you are. I said, tonight you're gonna have to walk out on stage and sit behind this instrument and play. And if it doesn't get out of the way. I said, and it inhibits your ability, um, like your technical barriers are there that you're not in control of. You have mastered the technical barriers, but the instrument is is basically blocking that. I said, those people out there, they're not going to know that at all. They're just going to think you can't play. And I said, and you're going to get bad reviews. And, every, and while I'm talking to this guy, he's like softening. I can see his shoulders dropping and everything. And I said, so my job is to make sure that this instrument disappears when you walk out on the stage tonight, that it just gets out of your way. And all of the years that you've practiced, you can just express yourself. And I said, that's what I'm, that's what I plan to do. I said, you were never supposed to touch this piano until I had five hours on it. And he said, what did you say your name was? I mean, he was like, all of a sudden I said, it's Tom. He said, Tom, no one has ever talked to me that way. He said, like, you really get me. And I said, of course I do. I said, you know, like, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to go out there and play. I'm not at your level, but I said, but I understand you're out there by yourself. And those people have no idea. They have no idea if this piano won't stay, you know, won't keep up with you. I said, so we got to make sure it does. And so 
um, I said, you know, just give me a couple of hours and I'll come down and get you. And he said, fine. So he goes downstairs. I came, went downstairs afterwards to get him. And when I went to, into his dressing room, I said, you know, I'm done. Why don't you come on up and play it so we can kind of work on it? He said, Tom, I don't need to. He said, I just don't need to. He said, I trust you. He said, if you say it's ready, then it's ready. And um, so he played the concert. was a big success. He got all these great reviews. Now, the story didn't end there. Um, two years later, he came back in town to a different venue, and they called me because there weren't very many people. There was nobody, actually nobody else in the town that had my credentials. So they called me, and when I walked into the theater, it was in the afternoon, and he was up on the stage playing, and he turned, and he saw me coming down the, the aisle, and he said, oh, my goodness. He goes, you have no idea how relieved I am it's you. He goes, I just kept thinking, I hope it's Tom. I hope it's Tom. He said, you know – um, he said, I'm so comfortable with you. And I said, well, how is the piano? He said, it's okay. He said, you'll figure it out when you, when you sit down at it. And he said, are you coming to the show? I said, well, I'd like to, but I don't have a ticket. So I'll get you a ticket. And, um, he said, you know, you'll be in the front row. So my point is, is that there was a situation where we could have been button heads together. And if we had had that on the very first day, because I thought deliberately, you know, because I made this decision, like, what can I control? And that's what I'm going to focus on. We, you know, that would have, that thing would have gone south. You know, he would have been mad. I would have left there feeling terrible. He would have put on a bad show. Instead, we ended up being almost friends. Like, um, and so that's the power of being able to, as you were saying, like being in the room and being in control of your own thinking, like being in control of that and saying, look, I understand this guy's going to be mad because he doesn't know what he did. All he knows is the piano is terrible and it is terrible, you know, like, um, so you know, when you can step back and you can say, like, what do I have control over? And that's what I'm going to focus on. Then my thinking became deliberate and it saved the day. It made, it made you know, like I said, we ended up being almost friends. Tom, thank you for sharing that story. And uh, our listeners now, I think we all agree that the takeaway from this story is that Tom Sterner will go way the hell out of his way to get a free ticket. <laughs> and, and this is so impressive to me tom because currently i'm listening to the audiobook and i have the printed version as well i'm building a small library of negotiation books it's become a, a late blooming passion with me and i catch so much of what the harvard negotiation project uh, guys uh, roger fisher being uh, one of the founders uh, and uh, robert urie etc was bruce Patton, those three gentlemen who deserve great praise they came up with a very academic approach that is dense with meaning and it, you really have to pay attention whether you're listening or reading this material but what it seems to me from my recent listening that you achieved tom in your work with this this piano master was you got him off of positional bargain bargaining puffed up, me against you, I'm right, you're wrong, what are you going to do about it, you really screwed me, whatever language he used there, and I'm insulting you because you're responsible for this. You got him off of that dug-in position in order to metaphorically go next to him and stand side by side as partners in solving a serious problem rather than remaining pitted against each other. And when you did that, you created, it was a beautiful creative option that you offered him to solve this problem elegantly. And it's a damn good thing he took you up on it. Well, it is. And you know, and that you expressed that very well. It was basically, I, and I told him, you and I are a team, you know, and I have my part in this and you have your part and we need to work together and let's do it. You know, like, so, like I said, I think 
he was expecting me and this happens to them i mean you know he was expecting me to come back and don't you tell me what to do and that because i don't care about you and your music i mean you know i'm sure these guys get into this in fact you know they sit on a bench and the bench has um these wheels on the side that you turn and when you turn those wheels it raises the bench or lowers the bench and that there is very critical to them because it determines what their hand positions are on the piano. So they come in and they they spend some time fooling with that and they get it to right where they want. And I can remember this guy uh, who was a concert piano technician. I met him in a, a conference and he told me that one of these guys, you know, was giving him a hard time about the piano and really insulting him. And he said, I'll tell you how I fixed him. He said, when he went off the stage and I had to touch the piano up, he said, I rotated those knobs and turned the bench 180 degrees. Well, <laughs> see, you know, when he did that, now when the guy came out, the bench wasn't where it was, and all, all the people are waiting for him. The bench wasn't where he, he expected it, and the knobs were reversed. And he said, I was standing in the he said he was getting really angry. He said, and I was standing in the wings and I waved at him and, um, you know, and let him know that, yeah, I got you. Like, um, see, I would never do that. But my point is that that's what could have happened, you know, in this situation. Um, and instead, uh, you know, I gained this guy's respect. And, you know, that was quite an accomplishment because he was incredible. He was an incredible uh, and very accomplished. Well, this idea of, of tit for tat and I'll get you and, and uh, so much adversarial thinking, I don't think is very freeing for us. This adversarial thinking is uh, trying to figure out how to best the other person. And you're either in the position of being a victim or you're in the position of being an aggressor. But again, I go back to, if you can control your own thinking, you are in the most powerful position. You're not and only you in the most. You didn't have some, to do anything to him. No. And the other thing is that cognitively, your brain opens up when you're at peace and you're in the present moment. Your your brain's cognitive ability is way bigger than it is when you're angry. You know, when you're angry, you're just trying to make your point. You know, yes. so there's not a lot of thinking that's going on. You know, you're right. just trying to make your point. So you don't have access to a large portion of your brain because your brain has to be having that conversation. What do I say next? How do I insult him? How do I outsmart him? All that kind of stuff is going on. And so you're not very open to um, everything that your brain has to offer. And like I said, so that conversation, got I could see him softening and I could see that he wasn't expecting me to act that way. And um, And actually, I was in control of him without him knowing it. like that's uh, And that's exactly what I'm saying, Tom. The thing that I like about it's just a thought and deliberate thinking is that if you can practice that to a, a degree where you are in control of your thoughts, you are the observer and you can stay calm, you have that emotional freedom now. You right. can choose. I mean, if you want to choose to be angry, choose to be angry. Maybe you feel like you want to have a rant, but well, sometimes there people need a automatic response every time. Right, and then sometimes people need a consequence, and I've certainly done that. You know, I've been in yeah. situations with people where uh, I have watched them step on people, and I thought, you know, this these people haven't given this guy a consequence because they're just not in a position to. So if, when that person turns on me, then I say, you know, you need to be squashed. And, but I'm giving yeah. myself permission to do that. Like, you know, I'm exactly. not I'm not reacting. I'm saying, you know, I'm doing this for your own good. So, yeah. um, no, you know, absolutely. And, and I think it's really important to realize we're talking about a skill here. 
Deliberate yes. thinking is a skill. That's all it is, is a skill. And the reason people don't have it is because, first of all, they didn't know they could have it and right. they haven't practiced it. But you do practice it. And like any other skill, the technical um, the technical stuff drops away and it becomes easier and easier. Thomas M. Sterner, his friends call him Tom. He's written a brilliant book. It's just a thought, emotional freedom through deliberate thinking. Tom, I hope that you will agree to a part two. We want to get together with you and discuss in more depth the practicing mind, the whole concept and how it benefits humanity. So we look forward to round two with you. Absolutely. Please, let's do it. All right. And stay tuned for Trip Talk at one o'clock this afternoon. And uh, help you get you ready for your uh, your car ready for the big road trip. There you go. Have a great weekend, everyone.